it's what drives us every day as scientists. I know that uh, um, I went into university life not because, hey, it pays well or uh, <laughs> or it allows you to do um, something extreme. I think the best part about science is that it gives me freedom. This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. And this week, I'm joined by returning guest, Dr. Anna Erickson. Anna and I renew our conversation around the future of nuclear energy, including the recent breakthroughs with nuclear fusion, the evolving conversation around small modular reactors, and where she envisions nuclear research and development going in the near future. Anna is the Associate Chair for Research and Woodruff Professor at Georgia Tech. She's Director of the Consortium for Enabling Technologies and Group Leader for the Laboratory for Advanced Nuclear Nonproliferation and Safety. She knows what she's talking about. She also happens to be my friend. So please... Sit back and enjoy this incredible conversation with one of my favorite people, Dr. Anna Erickson. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. So um, what have you been up to in the last six months? I can see that our conversation launched you into discussing fusion on primetime CBS. You're welcome for that assist. It had nothing to do with your 30 years of pioneering research and studies. Um, that's my sarcastic voice. I thought it was great. I thought the interview was great. Why did it, How do they reach out to you and contact you? Well, this was an interesting experience, first of all. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, my um, pleasure. This was a lot of fun last time, so I'm looking forward to doing this again. Um, it was uh, an interesting story, I guess. Um, out of all things, I was making um, chicken meatballs <laughs> for the kids, and um, my husband was picking them up from one of the mm -hmm. activities. Um, yeah. And then I get this phone call asking, can you go on prime time in about an hour and a half? And I said... Uh, can you tell me more? Well, it's going to be CBS primetime news, and they want you to talk about fusion. And this uh, recent uh, news um, that emerged from Lawrence Livermore National Lab about mm -hmm. a national ignition facility. And I said, well, this is really exciting. You know, I don't get to talk about good news related to nuclear often. So any chance I get to talk about good things, I jump on. I said, of course. And um, so I had about an hour to get ready and make sure that, you know, I have a light in camera. And my husband shows up home, and I tell him I'm going on primetime. And he said, are you crazy? What are we going to do with the kids? <laughs> go to your office. And I said, it's, it's 7.30 p.m. I don't have time to go to the office. Right. So we just had to deal with it. And then um, uh, later that night, uh, I got booked by BBC as well for the 2 a.m. news cycle. Uh, so that was another interesting thing. Well, it was great um, overall. I'd say it's stressful, sometimes challenging, but you know, when I get to talk about good things about nuclear, yeah, you know, I am your, your uh, you're, enabler. You're yeah. enabler. You're right, ready right, and willing. Right. Let me ask you, how old are your kids? Um, at that time, they were six and nine. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so. Just old enough to be bribed by Target gift cards and <laughs> say, hey, get out of the house for an hour. <laughs> it worked out just fine. Oh, uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a, um, it's a consequence of modern communication. Uh, there's so many 
almost all of them endearing instances of shoot a major newscaster on the news or having to do something remote for whatever reason from home. A lot of people have the, if not a studio, they certainly have the technology that allows them to dive into a conversation and they're in the middle of something pretty serious. And then somebody, you know, one of their children come walking in with SpaghettiOs or something like this happened all over the world where then the parent has to come and get them, you know, whether it's the husband or the wife or the partner or whatever, they've got to hurt them. And it just, uh, it reminds us we're real people in real time trying to have conversations. And sometimes it's a little, uh, um, it's a little looser, but it makes it more real. Well, the life does not happen in the studio, as That's you know. Right. It happens every moment of your life. So just get ready. Yeah. To deal with it. So when you went on that program, um, you were talking about primarily fusion, and we had had this big outcome or announcement out of um, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Can you talk a little bit about that now? Oh, yes, of course. So the news were about to emerge, so I had to speculate, which right. was, of course, uh, always nerve-wracking because I don't want to, you know, preempt the great news right. that the Secretary of Energy was announcing the next day. So I basically focused on talking about what the future holds for fusion and what the challenges are specifically to the National Ignition Facility uh, mission. Right. And if you think about fusion, uh, there are two types that are most commonly discussed. There's a ignition fusion, this is NIF that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. and then there's magnetic confinement fusion. And interestingly, NIF as a multi-billion dollar facility, um, they do a lot of research and it's obviously part of national laboratory. Mm -hmm. But a lot of startups emerged on the other side, the magnetic confinement fusion, and it's um, being promised as a near-term fusion source of energy as opposed to NIF, which could probably be more efficient in a in terms mm -hmm. of production of energy, but it's a much longer term. In fact, we're talking about decades away, and that's exactly what I told on a, on the show. Mm -hmm. But the big news that NIF had, um, uh, what, six months ago now, mm -hmm. is they finally trying to break through as far as energy that they put in mm -hmm. to achieve the ignition versus the energy they would get out. Mm -hmm. And I'm simplifying it here. Obviously, there are many steps to achieving that, but NIF has an interesting approach to how to create a fusion. Mm. If you look at the sun, right? Sun is our fusion machine. Mm -hmm. What are the conditions that are required? Where you have to have extremely high temperatures mm -hmm. and pressures. Mm. And those conditions um, are very favorable for hydrogen atoms um, to fuse together. And once they fuse together, they release energy. And the byproduct of that are neutrons. Um, the reason I say that is fundamentally different from fission, where you split the nucleus mm -hmm. and the two products are radioactive and that's what makes the waste so toxic, right? Those products, right. they take a while to decay, some up to millions of years. So fusion, in a sense, does not have a similar problem. That's why it's so promising. So how does NIF do that? Mm. Well, they use 196 lasers that they point at the target and the target contains the hydrogen that you need for the ignition. So they point lasers and the lasers create conditions momentarily that are very high temperature and pressure. And that's what we call ignition mm -hmm. when it comes to ignition fusion. And obviously, again, I'm skipping a lot of steps here, sure. but the bottom line is that NIF is finally showing that the amount of energy they put in through the lasers uh, could be equivalent to the energy that they are able to get out 
from the process. And there are plenty of obstacles still. There's sustainability of that process. Right now, they just shown it on a single target, but really to create a reactor, you need to have this process sustained on a much larger scale. But what we celebrate right now is the physics, right? Mm -hmm. The physics and engineering of this process, the first step to show that it's possible. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this. Um, first of all, I, I feel like sometimes, have you ever been a little kid when you're around a bunch of adults that are celebrating something, they're really excited, and you don't know why they're celebrating? You just see people that normally aren't celebrating, celebrating. We had uh, Dr. Christine King on a few weeks ago, who's one of the directors um, at the Idaho National Lab for GAIN. Um, and we were, different, we were having a different conversation about transmission and the possibility of nuclear power plants going into coal power plants for a you know, really fascinating conversation. Um, we didn't talk about fusion that much or fission. We talked more about um, just a different kind of conversation. But as I saw people celebrating around this, the success of this outcome, one of the questions I guess that comes to my mind is when you talk about a hundred and some odd lasers, how big of a spot are they pointing at? And for how long do they run the lasers? Is it just an instantaneous event? And is it going to a, a big spot, a little spot? Well, if, you, if it helps you envision that, um, envision uh, an eraser on your number two pencil, okay. right? Everybody's held yeah. number two pencil yeah. in the hands. So yeah. eraser, it's, it's tiny, right? right? By some standards. But this is what we, if I had to characterize the target, that's about the size. It's slightly larger than that. Right. So you point all those lasers. They have to be very precisely pointing at that target. And that target actually is what enables you to create that condition inside for mm -hmm. the gas. So um, as far as the celebration, why they would celebrate so much. Yeah. Well, number one is um, this is an important step forward, right? Showing that, yes, we can do things and things can be sustained eventually, you know, that's a cause for celebration. But also it's, uh, fusion's been a big challenge. Yeah. And when I was uh, an undergraduate student, something, something years ago, <laughs> <laughs> we always said, okay, fusion is always 30 years away. Right. Um, is it still 30 years away? It depends which type of fusion you talk about, but yes, in ignition in particular, we're probably still 30 years away even though, you know, the labs tend to be a little more optimistic than that. Yeah. So having those milestones is essential for the scientists to continue being excited about the research and for the society to actually see something on the progress towards a greater good. Yeah, I, that's been my experience as well, is that um, it doesn't have to be in a, a perfect example, but something that's tangible. And when people um, see something that's tangible... Even if getting to the result, if not improbable, is at least very difficult, will inspire, um, uh, you know, at least a romantic, if not an enthusiastic idea about, look, we need to put our time and money behind this. For me, probably the closest to that is um, the space race when we mm -hmm. really began, how are we going to do, how are we going to go from zero to landing a person on the moon in some way somehow and all of the complexities certainly the public i don't think understood the complexities of getting there but they had to do it in stages and honestly throughout most of the stages 
there was a lot more failure than success, which made the Apollo mission so incredible. Um, but we felt pressure to be, uh, you know, competing with, uh, at the time, the Soviet Union and their success, or at least what appeared to be success. We didn't want to learn lose that um, technological advancement. So there's a little bit of fear-mongering there, certainly on our part. But also just it just became inspirational. Our president, uh, President Kennedy, inspired us. And we, and we managed to sustain that through those very difficult uh, failures as we learned um, to eventually accomplish it through the Apollo. It feels like this could be that same sort of, maybe not a great analogy, but I mean, if we can capture people's imagination around something that really can make a significant difference in the future of humanity, time and effort and energy will get poured into that money. And also, it's my experience that if somebody... If somebody can go from a vague imagination to actually doing it, they kind of turn the corner on a way to do it. The science that comes after that is really pretty amazing. We go from, we don't think it's possible to, I think we got this. Well, I think this is true for any major challenge, sure. right? Whether it's current cancer, yeah, or achieving fusion, or putting a man on the moon, you name it. Yeah. Uh, you know, those smaller steps, they have to be celebrated. Otherwise, there's no motivation to go forward. Yeah. Right? Because nobody goes and discovers a drug to cure all cancers. Yeah. We, we know that this is a prime example because it's so prevalent in the society. Right. And everybody, everybody in some way or another has seen that, right? So how do we cure cancer? Mm. There's no answer to that. Mm. There's no simple answer. It's a process, and that's what is exciting about it. Yeah. Well, I used to, here's what I'm going to push back just a little bit right here at the beginning of the show. And I'm taking advantage of you because you're running low on sleep. So we're going to, it's okay. Um, I used to think there's no quick way to get through a fast food line. Not that I should be in fast food if my wife's listening to me. I probably have little to no experience. And then I saw what Chick-fil-A did and how they innovate and can move more people through that crazy line than probably any competitive industry in history. So I think we just need to turn the Chick-fil-A people loose on some of these problems, and they'll solve it. I have to restrain you a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> I know Chick-fil-A is exciting, but um, think about the scientific process, right? Um, the constraints compared to the Chick-fil-A. And again, um, let's take energy, for instance. Okay. First of all, the infrastructure scale is very different than Chick-fil-A, right? Um, think about the cost of the facility and the scientists you need to train. Mm. The PhDs alone that you have to train before they go and analyze the complex processes it takes a little longer than the 48-hour training Chick-fil-A has. Right. So that's, that's one. Uh, the throughput of uh, the problem, you know, Chick-fil-A, what they did as far as innovation and moving people through is optimization. Mm -hmm. Science does not work well with optimization alone, right? Mm. It's a discovery process because a lot of times we don't know where we're going with it. Right. So again, not to um, uh, drop the energy from the conversation, but I kind of want to go back to role of radiation and nuclear in scientific discovery for human health, right? Okay. This is not something we talked about last time, so I figured maybe that's a yes, good time let's to, do it. to bring this up because when it comes to nuclear, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? <laughs> so when we talk about the good, and people frequently think about 
energy technology, but they forget that there's another side to it, and that's using radiation for treatment, right? Mm. Because radiation is usually portrayed as something harmful, and yes, it could be. Uh, we've all seen the effects of um, 1945 mm -hmm. atomic uh, bombs being dropped on Japan, mm -hmm. and we still are trying to understand the effects and analyze them. But one of the things that we understand very well is that we can use the radiation for treatment of a number of diseases. That includes cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? Well, we use the radiation to target very specific parts of the body that are being suffering, right? Like mm -hmm. tumors, mm -hmm. to kill them, deprive them of their food and oxygen and make sure that they shrink and the surgeon can either remove them or uh, kill them off completely. So what is the discovery process when it comes to radiation treatment? Mm. Is that an optimization? Well, not quite because every tumor is different. Every cancer would respond differently to different types. And then, of course, there's a human body with its uniqueness. And, you know, cutting corners when it comes to scientific discovery or treatment planning or mm -hmm. um, even understanding which reactor to deploy next in this country, mm. that is a multi-variable process. Yeah. And that's what makes it a little different than optimizing um, throughput through the dry window. Yeah. I am, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that I love when science gets this right, um, we had on here not long ago, um, uh, former head of uh, astronomy at Harvard, Dr. Avi Loeb, um, very interesting uh, scientist. And we spent probably as much time talking about f f the f his concern with some of the philosophical parts of at least his area of study, where he he sometimes says, I just feel like there's a lack of curiosity. There should be more what if. What if? What if? So when you were talking about this as it relates to um, radiation and treating cancer or whatever else, I am I am in awe of the people sitting around, scratching their head with a whiteboard or a um, chemistry table or whatever. What if? How could we apply this? What? Where would we? And you know, the very first people that they voice that to a pro like are you crazy you want to radiate people how would we do this how would the world accept it how would we contain it um it, it do you think that there's that same level of curiosity in your field because i feel like that the the nuclear fill in the blank whether it's energy or in science um is 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 almost like a renaissance right now everybody everywhere i go seems to be talking about um this technology i'm curious do you do you you're in the that business do you find that to be true or um no it's always been there no this is a great question and yes i'm in the middle of that whole hurricane <laughs> of uh, activities and it's amazing to me how many startups are out there right now looking at small modular reactors or fusion reactors or the new medical devices um myself included, actually. And mm. this is one of my newest ventures is looking at nanostructured detectors for medical applications and how we can personalize what radiation are those? treatments. Oh, great question. <laughs> well, if you think about radiation detection, right? So we focus now not on the energy production, but how do we see the radiation? Mm -hmm. Human body, human eyes 
did not evolve since in radiation, right? So we have to utilize very specialized um, systems for that. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, radiation detectors are used everywhere around um, activities related to nuclear. Imagine power plant, mm -hmm. right? Nuclear reactor, and it's running. How mm -hmm. do you know what's inside? How do you know what's going on inside of the reactor? And is this safe? What's mm -hmm. happening? Yeah. We keep an eye on it using radiation sensors. We sense the level of radiation being produced inside. We correlate it with the power and the temperature, et cetera. So those are the eyes on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a patient and you undergo radiation treatment, uh, how much dose do you get? Meaning how much radiation overall does your body get? What is the safe limit? You need sensors for that. Mm -hmm. Right now, um, the way we do it is um, a little unorthodox, I guess, per se compared to some other industries. We have radiologists calculating your dose. We rely on radiologists and the calculations and the machines. Every once in a while, you'll um, get a specialty device that will be right there during the therapy measuring the dose. But a lot of times, we just rely on the preliminary calculations and the machine characteristics. <laughs> so the problem with that, of course, is it's generalized. And sometimes, um, Throughout the history, we've seen accidents that right. would occur because the machine would just not behave the way the radiologist expected. Right. Or maybe there was an error made, a human error. Right. So one of the things that uh, we've looked into doing in my lab is um, changing this approach and saying that every treatment that involves radiation must have some sort of device that will be used to verify what exactly is the patient getting. Mm. So it's no longer a black box to the to the patient, mm -hmm. per se, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so how do you do that? I mean, radiation detectors traditionally have been really large devices, and sometimes they, they're small, um, mm -hmm. like like a tube, right? Like a water bottle I'm holding right now. That's not an unusual size. So how do you measure patient-specific radiation treatment dose when it's a pencil beam, right, targeting right. a very small tumor? Well. You need something that's small and actually comfortable being next to the patient and measuring it directly. Mm. And this is where we came in a few years ago. We said, okay, we're going to depart from the traditional thinking that the bigger is the better, and we're going to say the smaller is the better. Mm -hmm. So imagine a detector that we um, actually manufacture from scratch in the clean room at Georgia Tech. It's um, size of a computer pixel. Oh, wow. And it's super sensitive uh, to radiation and it measures it directly and it actually outputs the signal proportional to the energy, which is exactly what we want, right? Right. So what we're now trying to do with this sensor is to create, say, everybody's seen a Band-Aid, right? Mm -hmm. One way or another. Mm -hmm. So imagine a Band-Aid containing those sensors in some sort of array, depending how we want to position them. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to apply that Band-Aid to the side, which is directly uh, related to the radiation treatment side. Mm -hmm. And now we're able to map the energy, both temporally and spe spatially, right? Mm -hmm. And tell the radiologist exactly what's happening to that beam of radiation that they send in the down to the patient. I'm, I'm not familiar with how I understand the concept. I, I've had a friend actually go through uh, radiation treatments um, dealing with their cancer. Is it, 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 can you open a person up through surgery and do radiation or is it just have to be on the surface? How does it work? And if it is internal, how would you uh, apply the bandage, the bandage or this, this device to measure the 
Well, the bandage was just an example of sure. skin, right? Okay. So once we know that those to skin, we can calculate the propagation. <clears throat> and that's exactly the idea behind that. Mm -hmm. But there's a process called brachytherapy where the source is applied internally. Uh, there are certain types of cancers when that works much better. Mm. So in this case, you can pair the detector with the source and actually measure the effectiveness right away. Mm. How long have we been using radiation therapy like this? Oh, great question. Uh, decades. In fact, um, there's an, a whole interesting story behind that field. Um, if we have time, I'm happy to dive in because it actually spans in field of high energy physics. Um, uh -huh. When people started studying neutrinos, which is the most abundant particle of the, in the universe, yet we never talk about it. Really? In fact, there are Trillions of neutrinos going through you right now, and you have no idea this is happening. What's a neutrino? Oh, it's a one of the fundamental particles. Uh, it's so tiny and it's chargeless um, that it doesn't interact with anything. In fact, a neutrino can go through the Earth without interaction. It's like it's an empty space to it. Right. So they really, really don't see you there. Right. You an empty space to neutrinos. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I am probably related to them in some way because I know that experience. But, you know, it's the most abundant particle in the universe, mm -hmm. uh, and it can tell us a lot about the origin of the universe. So high-energy physicists are fascinating with that particle. Mm -hmm. So when I get to go and talk to audience that is not just nuclear engineers, but also high-energy physicists, and we talk about neutrinos, that's a fascinating conversation because to nuclear engineers, well, we don't care. It doesn't interact with anything. We don't have to shield for that particle or anything. But physicists, they're like, whoa, this is the best thing to study because it can tell us the most about the universe. Hmm. So um, back in 50s, um, when they tried to study the particle, they said, well, how do we get that particle? You know, what produces it? And it turns out that nuclear fission produces copious amounts of neutrinos as a result of the split in the nucleus mm -hmm. and a subsequent decay. So they said, okay, so how do we get fission? And that was uh, called a project poltergeist. Um, <laughs> when the scientists came up with a brilliant idea, they said, okay, the one process we know that creates a lot of fissions is nuclear bomb explosion. Right. So here's the four-step process. Bam, we're going to get a nuclear bomb. We're going to explode it. Simultaneously, we're going to drop this big detector we just developed into evacuated chamber. Evacuated because, you know, there's a boom after the explosion. So right. you don't want that detector to suffer from the, right. from the shakes of the earth. And that detector will see the antineutrinos momentarily as a splash, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a problem with that logic, right? There's a nuclear bomb explosion that is necessary for that. So clearly that was ruled out right. as an experiment, but you know, nonetheless, it was proposed. Right. And they said, okay, let's turn to the next best thing and say nuclear reactor, right? So we're gonna put this big detector right next to nuclear reactor. Well, that big detector that the scientists developed um, had to be really, really big because, as I said, those neutrinos, they just travel through things without seeing them. So the bigger, the better, because mm -hmm. it's hydrogens that you know neutrinos seek to interact mm -hmm. with, and that's how we detect them. So it has lots of hydrogen, water or uh, water-based detection medium, and that's what they used. So they created this huge detector. Uh, they called it Il Monster. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, that detector was very efficient at detecting neutrinos. Mm. But the, what they also found is that you 
you can actually put a human inside of that detector and perform uh, radiation counting. So say if you if you had a person that was exposed to radiation and was radi- radiological source inside, mm-hmm. can you see that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that became one of the first therapy examples of saying, okay, those big detectors can be used as a whole body counter. Right. Given a birth uh, to detection for radiation-based treatments. So that was one of the first aspects of, hey, radiation is highly penetrating and we can direct it to the location of the tumor, but we need to measure things. So big detectors that came from high energy physics um, actually end up being one of the first tools in medicine. You know, I can't imagine... It blows my mind that they can come up with something like Napster and music sharing. And we're sitting here talking about detection devices and, um, you know, poltergeist uh, sources of matter and pieces of the world that um, of the universe that most of us have never heard of. And even scientists have to develop these extreme detectors to find them. How does that even occur to us to... uh, to believe or to a certain or even to detect or to build a detector to look for something that for all intents and purposes is invisible to uh to all but the most sensitive detectors it reminds me almost of um i was watching a show once and they were trying to describe the wind you can't see it but you can see the result of it so you see the environment moving around right you can feel it on your on your senses but even if you couldn't feel it you could see the result of it even if you didn't understand so it put you on a, this curiosity path it just blows my mind that that this world exists of people sitting around saying hmm i wonder if there's something like this that exists and we go out there and sometimes we find it not dissimilar to we find dna then we find the code within dna or on and on and on like we have a history of discovering things like this well i think you got it right it's curiosity yeah because what drives us every day as scientists i know that um, um, i went into university life not because hey it pays well or uh, (laughs) (laughs) or it allows you to do um, something extreme i think the best part about science is that it gives me freedom Mm. right So when, say, seven years ago, I sat down with my team and I said, this is not okay, what we're doing right now. We need to change the way things are done. Mm. Let's look into doing something that's completely different. And we drafted that idea on paper and then it went on my white wall. And I said, okay, so is this crazy? The answer was, yeah, it's crazy. It's never been done before. So what do we do? So we went in a lab and we did a lot of things that were failures. Mm. And the more you fail, the more you wonder, should Mm -hmm. I continue? Should I change directions? But if the physics works, there's no reason why we shouldn't see the effects, right? That's just the question. Are we ready? Do we have the necessary equipment? And eventually, we understood the process well enough that we were able to produce the detector that that worked. Mm -hmm. And not just worked, but it just defied our expectations. And interestingly... You mentioned, well, we can see the effects, right? We don't see the radiation. So what are the effects of radiation do we see? It's a charge, right? We know how to collect charge. We can talk about devices that uh, humanity have created from 
tiny charge capacitors all the way to, you know, substations and right. things that allow you to turn this charge into electricity in your home. Right. And that's what drives our computers, right? right. So how do we collect this charge? Um, that's, that's another story, right? How do we convert the char uh, radiation into charge and then collect it? Hmm. That's that's how we sense it. That's the our effect of the wind, I guess, in the, in the leaves that we look for. Yeah. I'm curious, just to go back to what you said just a second ago. So you're with your lab some seven years ago or whatever. Can you share with us what it was that you were pursuing? And then my, I guess my second part of the question, maybe even more important, why did you land on the idea that you've landed on now out of the possible um, ideas you are considering? Well, again, um, this is a, an interesting question because who doesn't want to change the way we do things sure. today, right? I mean, Tesla was a good example of challenging the automotive industry, right. saying, okay, in fact, I just recently bought one <laughs> because <laughs> I hate gas stations. Uh -huh. So that's been a great. Um, so challenging the status quo, mm -hmm. making sure that what you work on uh, has a real disruptive force. That's what wakes me up in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, seven years ago, that was, um, I guess, uh, second or third time I was teaching the same class that's called radiation dissymmetry. And for the semester, I focus on radiation treatments and patients and effects and the consequences, most importantly. And one of the things that, as you, we talked earlier, cancer and the radiation treatment affected every family in this country, sure. one way or another, whether there's a family member or a friend or a person, right. him or herself. And for me, it was almost personal to know very well how we do this process and not understanding why we stuck with this process for decades and mm -hmm. nothing was challenging it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to do is that every treatment, that every patient that undergone, especially pediatric patients, we know precisely what happens to a patient. Mm. And we have a record of that. Mm. And it became a personal thing, yeah. right? And I said, okay, what do we do? How do we do it? Um, what is the structure of the sensor? And importantly, we have to recognize that it's not enough to create something that is very good at radiation measurement, but it also has to has to be reliable, um, insensitive to temperature, insensitive to radiation damage, and most importantly, not to dis disturb the dose that the patient gets. Otherwise, you're already changing the treatment plan, right? Right. So we arrived at that concept based on the fact that we knew the limitations, and we knew that uh, we have a technology that can really disrupt us. And like I said, when we first introduced that into our community, it was like, well, who cares about that? You guys, why? I mean, there's a process in place. Why right. challenge it? Well, um, we'll see. I mean, yeah. we are very hopeful that we can not only challenge the process, but apply it in other areas, such as anytime uh, you fly, say, airplane, people get radiation dose. We don't really worry about it because it's not that high. But what gets damaged is electronics on that airplane that flies all the time, right? Or mm. the coating on the wings. And we want to know what happens to, to that. Or space exploration. 
the astronauts don't retire because of the age. They retire because they reach the certain radiation dose limit right. because of the space travel. Right. So we want to make sure that whatever we do, one of those sensors will be a part of any equipment, any electronics, and perhaps wearable technology that accompanies humans that may be subjected to increased radiation doses. I remember talking to one of the a, a couple um, astronauts and a um, one of the uh, chief data scientists at NASA. And uh, well, the conversation wasn't about radiation. It, we talked about it, and one of the things I learned through those conversations was radiation affects um, people differently, uh, in particular in the genders. For example, when they were talking about uh, women of a certain age traveling, um, as we consider missions to Mars, it's a much different effect on their body, their fertility, et cetera, than on men. And so like, how do we work through, first of all, how did we uncover these, uh, or this was, this was the discussion, um, as they talked about needing the curiosity to say, well, does radiation affect all people of each gender, of all age, of all ethnic diversity the same, or is there nuances and how do we how do we discover that and what are the results of that? And there is um, and then and then how do we, if we want this diversity of people to go to space, how do we help shield ourselves so that we can do that? Like it was and I'd I'd never heard of that conversation before, but it was it's a complex question. Human body is a complex machine, but radiation damage, you can envision it um, simply by thinking about the DNA strand, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a double helix. So now imagine that one of the um, parts of the double helix is broken, right? So one of the strands is broken. How does the body go about repairing that single strand? I don't, I guess. Well, there's a process, right? We fight cancer every day. Cancer is what, it's just a disease that affects body repair, right? right? And how the cells regenerate themselves and it has to do with the DNA. So, all right, the radiation comes and breaks one strand, the body goes on and repairs it. And maybe the frequency is so low that the body can handle just fine. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that you change the radiation for something that is much heavier, like say a proton, Mm. which is what we're concerned with Mm -hmm. when it comes to space travel. Mm -hmm. Protons, uh, 2,000 times as big as the electrons, right? Mm. The the one that I used as example for single strand break. So now that particle comes in and not only does a double strand break, but it does it so massively that multiple DNAs are affected, right? A lot of double strand breakage. So what's gonna happen to this case now? Can the body repair it more effectively? No. So think about that, how the energy is concentrated and applied and what the damage is done and can the body recover, right? the cell recover. Mm-hmm. And this is what boils down to how the body responds to radiation, why the immunity is important, why the age is important, and mm-hmm. uh, also the gender. So it is um, interesting that it's not about shielding the radiation, mm-hmm. but it's also what can you take something uh, like a pill. Mm-hmm. So if you're exposed to the radiation, your body is more efficient at repairing. Say RNA that would be introduced um, to repair those broken DNA strands. Hmm. And so actually there are a lot of studies that are ongoing uh, in radiation uh, related uh, biomedical um, industry. You know, how do we repair the cells instead of just shielding the body, mm-hmm. right? 
we also help it to repair itself. Yeah. It's fascinating. Every time I get anxious about some of the technologies that are coming into the world that have all this power, but if not applied correctly, it could be a disaster. I hear a story like this where I, I'm just fascinated in a positive way about how we can help human beings flourish. Well, this is why I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about it because, you know, it's not just fears. It's not just <laughs> nuclear waste, but it's also a lot of good in the world thanks to the technology and radiation yeah so there's a propaganda machine though it feels like um that had that had run for a period of time that felt that that would describe anything um when when you hear the word nuclear the only connotation from it was a negative connotation in almost every circumstance and i was just up in the northern virginia area at a um, industry event and it was really heartening for me to hear four or five people in my industry but that have close connections to some form of energy con uh, uh, creation, whether that is they're close to um, uh, nuclear energy or um, natural gas or intermittent energy uh, or uh, energy storage through batteries, all these other things. Having a conversation about um, that wasn't antagonistic, how do we merge these ideas to leverage the best of all of them so that we can have what's near and dear to my heart anyway energy sovereignty i don't want to rely on another nation state because i think that um that is one of many paths that can lead to uh, a complication and outcome we see it in the world today but it's it's you know i'm sure it's been going on since human beings have been creating energy through one form or the other um, but it was the first time that i noticed that uh, the various constituencies did not attack each other about yours is particularly harmful or expensive or whatever. It was, it seems like that energy over there um, can solve these kinds of problems in these circumstances. These over here can solve these kinds of problems in these circumstances. This one's kind of a ride through while we're waking, waiting for technological breakthrough and cost to reduce and on and on and on. And it felt very collaborative. Um, and I'm, I'm certain that's the first time I've heard that. Do, are you experiencing that yourself where people are more embracing? I think working together has been um, embraced as the path forward because nobody can do it alone. Yeah. Nuclear has a capacity to produce base load, right? Which means something that you rely on day to day, but the base load is a base load. Mm -hmm. There are fluctuations. Mm -hmm. And to fill in those fluctuations, you can't just do it with nuclear. Right. So you have to have nuclear working with renewables mm -hmm. or even natural gas um, to fill that void. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble during the peak electricity demand times, right? Right. Don't charge your Tesla during that time because right. you strain in the system. Right. We've seen that in Texas too during the storm what, yeah. a year and a half ago. Yeah. So working together is essential. And I think the industries are realizing that uh, they are not competitors. They are yeah. complementary. Yeah. I hope so. It is, I think it's, it's certainly something I have to guard myself against. There are ideas that over time I might get very emotionally attached to. And I'm not saying don't get emotionally attached to these are my children and this is important. I, that's not what I mean. 
But I do mean that um, I, I see this regularly in areas of philosophy, for example, or religious thought. I happen to be a person of faith and a religious perspective, but I allow myself to have ideas come and compete. I feel pretty comfortable where I'm at, how I got there, how I reasoned my way to an idea um, over time. And, and I have a huge circle of diverse uh, people either that have um, th- th- just have much different perspectives in some cases. And we, without dividing, without demonizing each other, let these ideas compete. Regularly, we don't change each other's mind. I wouldn't say that's not not in the macro, maybe over time, but um, but we uh, it allows us sort of to um, have this what I feel like is very healthy. One, I get to understand the other person's perspective. Two, they get to understand mine. And it allows us to wrestle with, there used to be a phrase as iron sharpens iron, right? And to, to kind of settle into, um, by the way, that's not all of me. I'm all of these things. We're talking about human beings being complex. And this 2 or 3%, we may not have exactly in common. But this other 90%, we want to raise our babies, is healthy, and um, so long as they don't interrupt our primetime interviews anyway. But um, it is, it. there are certainly ideas that I in the past have said, okay, well, you need to vote a particular political way, or you need to, um, you know, you do, you need to embrace it, a particular idea. And I would hold on to those pretty dogmatically. And I wouldn't be as intellectually honest with myself to allow an idea to compete with it that I might need to change my mind. I either form that idea at a selfishness or greed or incomplete information or whatever it is, and I'm not as eager to have my idea changed for me because it's, it. I love it. I've got my arms around it, and in it seems weird because we've come out of some political turmoil. We're not going to talk about that, but over the last few years, we're in some areas that seems to be maybe not doing as great. But as it relates to energy in our topic today, I'm finding more and more people are willing to have this. These their ideas challenge in a respectful way and open their minds to the, if not actually change their mind, they're certainly open to understanding more. And, and um, can I adjust how I think so that in some cases I see the other person's point of view and we can apply this. Climate change is a, is a force on that, certainly energy sovereignty and other things. But I it feels like there's a renaissance going on right now in this area, and I hope it continues. Oh, I agree. Um, well, interestingly, you mentioned that uh, people have open minds. Uh, the community of uh, nuclear reactor designers is an interesting microcosm of that because once you set on a particular design type, it's almost like religion. Like, <laughs> oh, I work on this SMR. Oh, I just believe in big, large reactors, right. and this is why. And it's um, it's uh, funny because when I go to my professional conferences where you know, a bunch of reactor designers get together and talk about things over beer, well, we have heated debates why some things are better than the others. And SMRs are probably a good example of that. Yeah. So SMRs are small modular reactors, and it's became a beacon lately of the nuclear power renaissance because they are much smaller to build, so less money is involved up front. And... Uh, Theoretically, you can build them faster and they can be more flexible. But along with all the 
plus sides, there are, of course, downsides, right? Mm. Uh, such as how do you safeguard those reactors? What about the safety? If you're going to transport them as a battery, what is the implication of your reactor being on the highway? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. So this is the community that's now experiencing maybe too much attention from outside world and saying, hey, we trust you guys. And now between the scientists and engineers, we have that heated debate, which technology is better? And it's uh, almost comical sometimes. Uh, that's been our experience in our industry is we've built these data centers that were 30 megawatts, then 80 megawatts, now 500 megawatts. The, because they're tied back to data. The more we use, the more we make. The more we, I'm sorry, the more we use, the more we want. The more we want, the more we make. Why do we need an 8K TV? I don't know. When are we going to need a 16K TV? Um, Dr. Uh, Ginger up at University of Washington was talking to me about quantum dots within the, like, this is human experience. It's what we do. And so we, for us, the idea of, the romantic idea of a small modular reactor that I don't have to push from the South Carolina, Georgia border all the way over to central Georgia, but I could have in close proximity or on our property um, that are modular so I can build them out as the site grows and expands is wildly attractive. But it also opens up a bunch of questions like, who manages those Right. Who things. owns those? Who owns those things? I have 200 megawatt plus substations on my property, half of which I own, the other half of which Georgia Power owns. Um, we have the ability to operate it um, in the case of an emergency, all these other things. But this adds a level of complexity that that we're I don't I don't know that we're really talking about now. We're attracted to this idea for sure. So as you think about that. How do you think about the role of SMRs in big base load infrastructure like us and the complexity of all of that, regulation, everything? I say you should go big and go with the large Vogel type reactor giving you <laughs> power needs. <laughs> if it SMRs, were easy to do. Uh, yeah. um, so the reason I threw the word electric there is because when we build them, we refer to thermal power, uh, right? So okay. 300 megawatt thermal, that's a typical SMR. So <clears throat> about a third of it would give you electric. Okay. Right. So, so 100 megawatt electric, that's right. what you're talking per unit. So it's not a huge reactor. Right. But that flexibility and modularity is definitely attractive, especially given some of the interesting designs like New Scale. Um, actually, New Scale reactor came out of Oregon State, my alma mater. Hmm. And uh, when I was a student there, um, they actually were pushing that design out of the university and into the commercialization world. So that was. Oh, sheesh, almost 20 years ago. So, you know, it's been a while, so it takes a while. And New Scale is actually one of the first successful ventures to go ahead through the licensing at mm. the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And they're planning to build some of the prototype units in, I believe, Utah mm. and a couple of other spaces. So the reason they were so successful is not because they said, oh, we're going to start it early 20 years ago. No, they said, well, we're going to base our reactor on the technology we used to. So it's still light water reactor, just like Vogel. Mm -hmm. They just changed the design dramatically to make it smaller, uh, remove the parts that, uh, you know, could be actively failing, like the pumps. They rely on natural circulation. And they said, okay, our business model is we want to build them in a factory and then just transport them and, you know, sell them to people or lease them to companies um, or utilities and 
that that's how we're going to do it. And that became attractive. Mm -hmm. But as you said, the problem is who is going to manage those reactors? The maintenance, you need the personnel, you need to make sure that they safeguard it. We don't want another incident where, you know, people wander on site and create security conditions, um, which, of course, nuclear reactors, uh, we worry about right. those type of things. So a lot of times I hear about especially big data centers. I think I sent you an article you a few did. months ago on, you know, SMRs and how yeah. they can be useful for that. But people, people think, okay, well, maybe underground, right under my center, I'm going to have like a you know, concentration of those reactors. But um, just think about it. There's an exclusion zone associated with them, right, um, in case of radiation release, et cetera. So things are a little more complicated than people portray it. Mm -hmm. But I would say, um, given where we go with the technology and the zoo of different SMRs that are emerging, right, there are so many companies right now working on SMRs because of their promise, I think we're going to figure this out because... A lot of it has to do with regulations, and as we get more used to them, we understand the regulations better. We streamline the process, the Chick-fil-A style. Oh, I'm sorry, was it Chick-fil-A? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about earlier. Um, and once we figure the bottlenecks out, I think you're going to see a lot more um, applications of those. And I would say um, data centers, obviously mm -hmm. a good example. Yeah. And no, we're not going to give up our 4K TVs. They only going right. to go up in this. And I think there's a simple reason related to human mentality is too much and never enough, as yeah. you know. Right? That's exactly right. Um, so this natural unsatisfaction with the current technology and the need to go forward will always be there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that we can count on it. Right. Uh, so SMRs... Um, I think it's more than the data centers as we transition to electric fleet of vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to need to start thinking, how do we optimize our uh, grid and energy delivery? Uh, another example, of course, is climate change mm -hmm. and how the climate change affects, again, the grid and the energy distribution and our ability to create uh, mobile power sources during um, extreme conditions like we've seen in Texas 18 months ago. So a lot of that gives us a nice push for the reactors. But there are other things related to reactors. For example, people don't talk about it, but I will because I can, uh, <laughs> is the, again, medical applications. We get radioisotopes that are essential for saving human lives. And a lot of times we use reactors to produce them. Right. The problem, once you produce them, you have to transport them to the hospitals. And the time is of essence. The longer you wait with your transportation, the longer it takes, the less effective they are because they decay, they lose the energy. Mm -hmm. So having sources of not just electricity, but also life-saving medicine in form of radioisotopes is essential. And some of the SMRs we see that uh, emerging, part of their business model is production of those radioisotopes sure. in addition to energy. Sure. You could have it right there in a, you know, in a major metropolitan area. I mean, they don't have to be the size of a we use for a data center, you know, it could be much, much smaller, right. but generating um, that content. I, I'm curious, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I know you will, but don't, don't we use SMRs in our naval fleet? Well, yes, we, we don't really refer to them as SMRs in the naval fleet. Okay. Uh, I mean, the light water reactors, they small, obviously they compact, um, uh, but uh, yes, 
essentially the same. Essentially the, the same, <clears throat> but again, we don't really call them SMRs. This is specific to the power producing reactors. Okay. Is it, um, and I think I remember from our last conversation that the fuel in a reactor in a Navy ship is much higher enriched because it's got a lot more control over it or whatever the other reasons than what we're talking about here. Yes, this correct. is a very small relative to, you know, in terms of uh, the enriched, it's, I don't remember the exact percentage, but, percentage, but I think it's single digit. Between As, three and 20. Okay. Uh, in the current reactors are between three and five and the, the newer reactors are pushing up to 20. So 20 is the limit. Um, according to our regulations. Right. But naval reactors don't fall under that limit. That's right. why, again, we don't refer to them as SMRs. They're called naval reactors because they are not falling under the same jurisdiction of oversight. Right. It, it feels like the potential, if we can figure some of this out, we were talking about baseload before, um, in the article that you sent me, which I thought was fascinating, was Dominion Power, if I remember correctly, right. out of Northern Virginia, has a data has a uh, nuclear power plant up in uh, Connecticut, mm -hmm. something like that. I, I might get it wrong. I will get fat checked, but um, but there's a data center provider that wants to build. And then my friend Kevin Dalton, um, he's with Cumulus, and they are next door to, uh, if I remember correctly, a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. And for them, it is I'm right, I'm right here behind quote unquote behind the meter. I don't have a bunch of transmission right. challenges. And I have access to very clean, relatively speaking, in terms of carbon output, um, no carbon, carbon-free output. And I've got this, you know, the power of the sun, it feels like. I know it's not fusion, but I've got this amount of power. And it's really caught, whether it's SMRs or other in close proximity um, to this, I'm dealing with my base load. And also one of the conversations I've heard, Anna, is how can I then, once the load for the, whether it's heavy industry like data center, how can I supply my ecosystem around me so I don't have to, um, I can extend from there out. I don't have to try to build in, as Christine talked about, uh, it can be as long or longer to get transmission infrastructure built in as it in any of these generation and if you think of vulnerability of your energy delivery, it's the, the, the transmission lines, right? Right. Uh, actually, we did the study on um, the effect of uh, widespread transmission lines versus reliability of electricity delivery. And it's fascinating that, uh, you know, if you, if you live in Atlanta area, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Any kind of wind, the tree is down, the whole neighborhood's out of power, and yeah. then you call and they tell you it'll be three days yeah. because there are a bunch of you guys. Right? <laughs> so, so we think about how reducing uh, the energy delivery, uh, electricity delivery, will affect uh, reliability on not just data yeah. centers but also just regular communities. Yeah, uh, it's it's a very good topic to keep in mind. Do you think the science is settled on? some of these things, or is there, you're talking about the level of, which I love to hear, um, the level of a number of entrepreneurs that are attracted to whether it is SMRs or it is um, applying uh, nuclear science to medical innovation. There are so many things that are, you know, so many things in the modern world that are attracting people to come and innovate within them um, energy's got to be as high, you know, up there with probably um, material science, artificial intelligence, uh, 
Um, is it is it a pretty robust field or is it is there like in my business it's a high barrier to entry if you don't have a lot of you know we're building in multi-billion dollar infrastructure and so um it's difficult to get in to be as an entrepreneur um i'm wondering if there's that kind of environment there in your world where it's just bring an idea come and join the discussion or is there a high barrier to entry well 20 years ago, it was a really high barrier. I mean, look at Vogel, right? Yeah. How much money does it cost to get those power plants built? And don't forget that the government subsidizes parts of it. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so now, say about a decade ago, we've seen a fundamental shift from that mentality of, hey, let's go big and rely on the big established corporations to, hey, let's raise money and uh, go with the designs that are fundamentally different. Hence, you see that renaissance of battery reactors and SMRs, and there's so many varieties of them, and they tackle in the common, I don't want to call it enemy, because it's a really, really good agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but mm. they tend to be the bottleneck and you know, standing between those little, small companies and actually going after big bucks as far as when the design is complete and they're trying to build something. I mean, they're there for a good reason. Sure. Uh, I, I want to emphasize that. that right. You know, but other practices that they apply to those companies consistent with the best business practices, probably not because they're so used to those big giant reactors that they've been seeing for years right. of the same kind, right? So now um, we see a shift and not just a um, entrepreneurial mentality, but also the regulatory and the government mentality of saying, hey, how do we support these people better instead of laughing at them like it was 10 years ago? <laughs> it's like, you guys are crazy. You know how much it costs to build a nuclear reactor? Yes, yes. But what if we do it differently? And yeah. this is, I think this is a very exciting time to be in this community as, you know, and support it. Because they are tackling this big elephant in the room. Yeah. Of, you know, no bear, no entry from, hey, let's lower it so we can have competition and where ideas come together to bring something better to the table. Why do you, th do you think they're, they're more open-minded in considering ideas um, and adjusting as they need to because to maintain an economic um, uh, edge or is it um, to reduce vulnerability to, I mean, let's face it is, you know, as nations are out there and, I, and I'm not, I'm trying to be respectful as I frame the question, but there is an advantage that we feel as American citizens if we are um, at the forefront of energy innovation, if we are at the forefront of computer science innovation, if not the leader, certainly a fast follower and a fall behind in a number of these spaces, you know, has, um, has impacts to our regular everyday life. And so do you think these agencies are responding to that or is there is that just the natural evolution we start off really tight with restriction then we open it up and then we get it tighter i'm i'm not sure how it relates to that but what's your what's your take why do you think we're we're getting more um more thoughtfulness around the idea of adjusting how we t bring new ideas to market in an area like I, by definition, I want my people that are in charge of regulation of something as serious as nuclear stuff. I don't want them just to be like, eh, whoever, stamp, obviously. <laughs> 
But to have no progress at all is a disaster, um, if not of equal proportion, still disaster. Why do you think there's a there's a f- growing flexibility to consider more ideas? Well, it's the Chick-fil-A example, right? <laughs> it's like we recognize that uh, you can't just um, not move forward. And mm. the question is, well, how do you proceed? And it's, again, learning process. But one interesting thing that um, a few years ago, we recognized that we've fallen behind China and Russia. Mm. China was starting to build one of everything, literally um, experimentally testing things. Russia has a lot more experience in fast reactor technology, which form a basis for some of those SMRs. Mm-hmm. In fact, they still have operational um, sodium-based fast reactors that uh, we consider in here for the SMR technology. So falling behind does not look good. Right. And the government recognized that and pumped quite a bit of money into a variety of activities. And, you know, when the government starts pumping money, the industry wakes up and then investors follow. And then all of a sudden you get a bit of a snowball. And a lot of times, you know, it results in something good. And sometimes you will see some failures along the way, you know, of people being overconfident in their designs. And it's completely normal. But, you know, that's what we call evolution and thinking and evolution and engineering of those systems. And I think we have a pretty exciting 10 years ahead of us. For sure. If you think of fusion as, I mean, it's got to be if you're in this space, if not the short of literally the first time we split an atom, it's got to be right up there. It's super important um, milestone. Whether it's what your lab's working on or some of the things we've talked about today, what do you think in the next four or five years, 10 years are going to be like... And, and you're not on record, this I'm, may or may not, but in all seriousness, what do you think, what are you excited about? Like, we're going to, I don't know how, I don't know who, I, I'm I'm certain it's going to happen. I may not know the exact um, five or 10 year when it's going to happen, but this is going to be one or two of these major milestones. Well, I can completely go on the record because, you know, uh, <laughs> who knows what 10 years from now <laughs> will look like, but that's fine. We can all speculate. Um, I'm going to start with the big item here, and I'd say magnetically confined fusion. Mm. I really want to see that happen next 10 to 20 years. Um, I would be extremely excited to see that. And the primary challenge is the materials. Mm. We know the physics. We know how to engineer the system. But the materials are still somewhat failing us, although we've made, and by we, I mean, of course, the community, not myself necessarily, uh, we made tremendous progress and designing the new generation of materials that could be very helpful for those. And how is that systems. different than the laser system you're talking about? Well, the laser system based on the ignition, like we right. talked about, yeah. you know, pumping huge right. amounts of energy to get something out. Right. Magnetically confined fusion, you use magnetic field to confine those high temperature and pressure conditions. Mm-hmm. So you, it's a it's fundamentally different process. Um, and as far as the fusion goes, this is the one that we see as probably more feasible in the near term, mm. although maybe not as efficient as the other process. So there are a lot of startups. Um, uh, actually, some classmates of mine started companies in, in the last decade, um, attracting big investors because there's faith that this can be achieved. So that's one, fusion. Mm. The second one I want to throw out there is human-centric medicine and not just... Um, drug discovery, but also, like I said, imagine if 
a patient undergoes a treatment, right, for a tumor. Now, how do we know if the radiation treatment works or if the drugs work? We look for the markers, right? So as the tumor uh, basically dies off, right, mm -hmm. um, we start looking for biological markers. So this next generation sensor that I'm very excited about to see on the market at some point is the one that measures both radiation and the biological output, mm -hmm. telling you as a doctor, yes, this works for this patient because... Right now, we're working with averages. Yeah. And I think we are far too good to work with averages, you know? Yeah. If we can personalize the radiation delivery and treatment and understand the effects on real time, this is very exciting. Can you imagine if you could personalize it like that? One of the things that I love is Spotify. Yeah. And Spotify says, okay, well, your playlist that you've liked looks like this. And I've seen how it's grown over years. And so I've got a whole bunch of other people like you that listen to very similar things. In fact, they've grown their list over time. They've added these things to it. They've removed these things from it. And so I'm going to call them voodoo dolls. And they, they look a lot like you. And the more information I'm willing to give Spotify, because why wouldn't I trust Spotify or Netflix or whoever, but Spotify in this case, it, it then learns to suggest things to me and over time it builds a really interesting profile and it gets pretty good at offering me things and so what you were talking about you imagine if i have submitted myself um uh my dna my my medical you know um information so it's my current it's not just my starting sort of origins my ethnicity or whatever but these are the things that I've gone through in life, the diseases or the successes or failures or whatever. And now when that doctor comes back with that treatment that was successful, it can go look for people like me so that when I, if I come against that same sort of issue, here's a treatment that worked as specifically as possible for somebody like this. And then based upon my outcome, hopefully a successful outcome, I would like to think, it can then feed the database and the you know this growing federated body of information. Now I'm pretty libertarian, so this better all be wrapped up in blockchain and whatever. But I just think the big idea of being able to refine our results, not just to the medical community to make their their um, treatments more successful, maybe ultimately even predictive, but to be able to um, narrow down so that their um, their treatment of me as as uh, least invasive as possible to get the maximum outcome. When I hear you talking about that, that's what seems to me is amazing potential if we can get good at this. I'm glad you threw the word blockchain as, <laughs> as we were talking about. It's like there are a lot of issues related to data privacy and insurance, etc. And I think yeah. this is, of, of course, a concern. And uh, one of the big hurdles we're going to have to overcome is how do we deal with the patient data privacy? Yeah. And of course, AI application to that. And we can spend another hour just talking about that. Yeah. So, but yeah. And my third one I'm going to throw out there is this uh, renaissance of SMRs and nuclear reactors that are more traditional. But I want you to think about them, not just the next uh, potential solution for data needs, but also space travel. I mean, you can't do space travel without nuclear reactors. We know that. Yeah. Uh, um, despite of, you know, all the 
successful travels to the moon, if you right. want to go farther than even right. just the solar system, you've got to have something that's more reliable than what we have now. And there are a lot of activities that are ongoing in both private companies as well as national labs and looking on uh, nuclear reactors related to space travel. Um, and, you know, if they work for space travel, they can also work for deployment um, for, you know, military or uh, emergency needs. Uh, so the, the family is the same of those reactors. Right. That's my bottom line that I think this is probably going to be the, the nearest achievable point. So I kind of went into you know, in the opposite direction yeah. there, timeline-wise. So that's... Is, is this going on globally, or is it primarily in the U.S.? It is global, yes. Um, like I already mentioned, Russia and China uh, working on a lot of these technologies. But, um, you know, Europe um, is also investing into both the space technology as well as SMRs to some extent, not mm -hmm. as much as the U.S. Yeah. But in the U.S., it's uh, particularly exciting because it's not just... Like I said, it's not just national labs, but it's also private companies. Yeah. Um, that's what Christine was telling us, that um, up there at the Idaho National Lab, part of the GAIN program is how do we encourage entrepreneurs in this space? Bring your ideas. Bring them here. We have a bunch of resources. We can also connect you with other entrepreneurs, whether it's a small department, a large organization, or um, just a small group, you know, thought leaders. And uh, I just thought it was fascinating that that, the government, I had not heard of this before, is encouraging this entrepreneurial um, endeavor. Uh, they think it's not just great for the U.S., but for uh, humans. Well, the nuclear genie is out of the bottle, right? <laughs> uh, we know that. And instead of putting um, traps or stop signs, I think the government decided to take a different approach and say, hey, working together actually brings uh, a lot more to the community than, you know, trying to stifle this. Yeah. And this is particularly exciting right now because the government is, um, well, at least they seem to be fully aware about the climate change implications as well as the emerging energy needs, data science in particular. Yeah. And, you know, the chat GPT is not going to be self-supporting without electricity. Right. <laughs> so we got we to gotta come up with different solutions. And really, the status quo is not an option anymore. It's interesting that we have – we used to think that this – there's a very famous conversation. It seems like every year we've created more data in the last year than in the history of the world. And every year we would mm -hmm. re-say that. And we thought we were on this hockey stick of data growth until the last eight months when generative AI has gotten out into the public discourse. And what was a hockey stick we now see is just a flat line compared to where it's it's going. Just in our own infrastructure and digital infrastructure, we've gone from building a data center every year to 18 months to building six or seven a year. And they're not small data centers, they're big data centers. And so it's important for us to be wildly efficient with what we're doing with not just our energy, but with our water. You know, how do we how do we be get great stewards of the resources, whether it's people or whatever? But that we're just at, so far as we could tell at the beginning of this, and everybody's trying to figure it out. And so um, quantum computing—that's where you need to. Go. <laughs> I've had a number of quantum uh, compute people come on, and they're as diverse as energy people. Oh, yeah. You know. Um, uh, what shocks a lot of people that I'm talking to is not some is is where IBM's with quantum computing and a number of organizations. Um, we have got some pretty significant 
quantum computers already built and that are coming. Um, and there's positive and negative consequences of that, but also nation states that have built these things. Like many, many of our big nation state competitors aren't launching new aircraft carriers and sending them through the sea trials. They're doing quantum computing. They're doing AI. They're emerging technology in nuclear because this is where the ideas and the resources of the future are going to live. Not, uh, you know, how big is your battleship floating around the ocean? To some extent, I agree. Well, where don't you agree? Well. Oh, we don't have to get into it if you don't want to. It's not that uh, I don't think we have time (laughs) to get into that. That's a big topic on its own of, you know. um, And as you work, I one of my interests is nuclear security, right? Yeah. And uh, where do we stand as far as nuclear security and what does it mean? Conventional versus nuclear weapons and the right. deployment. And it's a big topic. I, I wish we had time to discuss it because it's on mm. its own. It's a conversation. We'll do it next time. All right. We'll do it next time. Well, what what haven't we talked about that we should have this time? You know, you got your list. I got my <laughs> list, but uh, uh, it's been a it's been a long conversation. How about if I save some of this? And I would love to have the conversation about nuclear security and proliferation. And we'll. Uh, um, you live not far from here, traffic notwithstanding, and hopefully we can do this again well, soon. Sounds good. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for having me on. My great pleasure. Hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, like, and if you loved it, subscribe. We'll have links below to Dr. Erickson, Erickson's lab and her uh, now famous CBS interview uh, and the BBC. Thanks for joining everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll see you. Thank you.